for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, eco-friendly, vegan, organic, ethical, sustainable. No, not at the grocery store. You may have noticed at least some of those labels when shopping for clothes these days. They are becoming increasingly common as consumers voice concern about the industry's environmental and social impact. But what exactly are the standards? How much information can you glean from those labels? How truthful are they? We find out. The World Health Organization has released some tough new guidelines around non-sugar sweetness. So what are they advising? Why? And what do you need to know? We get a reality check. But first, we look into just what kind of impact the housing affordability crisis is having on working Canadians right across the country. We meet a 57-year-old Halifax woman who was forced out of her apartment by a red eviction who's now living in a van and find out why she made that tough choice and learn how homelessness among those over the age of 55 is becoming more and more common in North America. We're going to begin tonight with an issue that I think is of concern to most of us. Uh, I think everyone's thought about it of late, and that's sky-high housing prices in this country and how it's really changing a lot about the way we live. The Desjardins Group reported this week that home prices as a share of disposable income rose to record highs in 2022, and it's likely to get worse. Um, Resale homes in this country have soared by 17%, the price has, since the start of the year. And we know how housing affordability has impacted the young in this country. It's changing the way when they leave home. It's changed when they settle down, when they have children. So much about having a roof over your head changes the way you approach life. Obviously, we all know that. Um, But it's also having a cascading impact on older Canadians, particularly those who are not in the housing market, those who rent. Uh, For example, the 2020 Metro Vancouver homeless count found that people over 55 accounted for one quarter of all of the region's homeless residents. One quarter were over the age of 55. Last year, Terry Smith Fraser, a 57-year-old single grandmother and full-time nursing assistant with the province of Nova Scotia, was forced out of her apartment after the new owners renovated and more than doubled her rent. She couldn't find anything she could afford. She couldn't afford that and couldn't find anything else that she could afford. So she decided that van life was her only viable option. At 56, she moved into a van and she posted a video to social media on the day that she made that move. Okay, so today's the day I leave my apartment. I've been here, I think, almost nine years. I really enjoyed living here, so it's a bummer to be renovated. And now I'm going to move into a van full-time. And it sounds exciting, but I'm just not sure if I'm ready. Goodbye, home. I know I'm supposed to be excited, but oh, I'm kind of stressed out, really. It's a, it's a really big uh, life change, so it's just a little bit stressful. I'm sure I'll be better in a few days. That was Terry Smith-Fraser more than a year ago now as she left a home she'd been renovicted from and moved into a van full-time. This was something that she'd planned to do in retirement, but not yet. Not yet, but it signals, it just highlights the kind of issues we're having in this country around housing affordability. And Terry Smith-Fraser joins me now from Halifax. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Sure. Tell me a bit about your story. I mean, in the video itself, there is that moment where you leave your apartment. But like so many Canadians who've been faced with really high rents where they live, the loss of your home really puts you in a, in a, in a really difficult predicament because there's really nothing else out there affordable anymore. 
Yeah, you're you're right there. There there really isn't anything affordable in Halifax at all right now. I'm not sure how other people are doing it. Uh, a van became basically my only option at the time. I, I didn't think leaving my apartment was going to hit me as hard as it did until I walked out the door and uh, it hit me pretty hard. And just for so listeners know, I mean, everything everything else in life is was pretty stable, right? Yeah, I have a full-time job. I've uh, worked in healthcare for 35 plus years for the province of Nova Scotia. Yeah, and now I live in a van outside the hospital on the street. The circumstances, I think, are familiar to a lot of people who find themselves in rental properties that they know they couldn't afford if ever they had to leave them. But but this was a rent eviction, right? I mean, we read a lot about that. But what were the circumstances whereby you found yourself, whereby you had to leave your your, your old place? Well, our apartment building was owned by an older retired couple. And when the housing crisis started, we could see all the buildings and houses in our neighborhood going up for sale. I was a little worried that our landlords would sell the building, and they did. So that was in August of 2021. And the new owners that bought the building, their intention was to have us all leave so they could do some renovations and, of course, uh, charge more rent. People may not know this, but Halifax has become one of the most expensive rental markets in the country. And then you went looking for something similar and just couldn't find a thing, right? No, everything was almost triple of what I was paying in rent. You know, I work in healthcare, so I have a good job. I make fairly decent money. I'm a single person. And I couldn't even apply for the apartments because I didn't make enough. You needed to make three times the rent because rent couldn't be more than a third of your income to apply for the apartments. Right. And I and I really didn't want to be paying that much for rent. I, I still want to, you know, enjoy my life a little bit. How did you come up come upon the idea of? I mean, what a huge! I saw watched the video of the day that you leave, and just the the stress and the emotion. But what a, what a very difficult decision to have to make. What what pushed you in one one direction? I guess you could have tried to find roommates, or I mean, I don't know what other options there were. But you decided that this the independence of this was important enough to try this out. Yeah, I've always been a car camper, so this is actually my fourth vehicle that I've camped. Well, now I live in this one. So I knew when I retired that I was probably going to buy a van and then I would travel and that would allow me to always have like a home. So when uh, this pending rent eviction was coming, of course, a van was forefront. I, you know, I'm in my 50s and I didn't think that I should have to have a roommate. I thought that at that age, you know, and with a full time job, I should be able to afford an apartment. So it was very discouraging. And so the van just kept forefront in my mind and I started looking for one. And and that's now the roof over your head, right? Is, is that, I mean, I watched you live through Hurricane Fiona. I've watched you live through a winter on TikTok, on, on social media. What's it been like? It's actually been pretty good. I mean, van life does have its challenges, but, you know, living anywhere has challenges. But, you know, you, you just kind of get in a, into a routine and uh, figure it out as you go. The most difficult thing for me was, you know, kind of figuring where, where I was going to park and also being a solo female in a van on the streets of Halifax. Uh, Safety is always an issue. When you look backwards at it now, do you think you made the right choice? Was the van the right choice? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I wouldn't have been happy like living in a room in someone's house. I don't think I do well with roommates. <laughs> I don't right. know. This gives me independence and freedom and uh, go grocery shopping. And when I come out, I don't even have to leave. I can literally make supper in the parking lot. Yeah. I, I, you, you, I mean, tell me about the idea to go to social media, because in some ways, 
it really lays bare both the good side of it, but also the downside of it, right? I think that's watching your social media posts really lays it out there. What made you decide to share the story? I think I wanted to share some of it on social media because a lot of people are going through the same thing. Even if you're not renovated, it's very hard to find a place to live. And I think a lot of people are interested in van life. I know it is glamorized on social media and I'm definitely not in a $150,000 sprinter van or anything like that. So I wanted people to, I don't know, see that they could do this too, especially women of my age, that it is a possibility and, uh, you know, it can be really great. Right. I get the distinct impression watching that you you really don't want people to pity you. No, 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 not at all. It's, it's, uh, I, I wasn't on social media trying to gain sympathy or anything like that. It was more... I guess, to promote van life. And if people have questions about it, it was a place where they could ask me, um, you know, how to do things or how I did things. And, you know, it's also a place where I can ask people the same, you know, how to do things. You must be getting quite a bit of interaction from other people who may not may may not be living in a van, but who found themselves in a similar, really insecure place that I don't think a lot of Canadians look at someone who, you know, in your situation, think, oh, that, you know, they work for the, they work for the province in healthcare. I mean, normally that used to be when I was growing up, that was a path to, to forever security. Right. And yet right. you've had to make some really tough choices. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. And, you know, I think people thought, uh, you know, that maybe it wasn't the best idea. I think people just didn't fa- couldn't fathom it. You know, they, they couldn't see me living in a van on the street. So, you know, people always made other suggestions. Terry Smith-Fraser is with us from Halifax this half hour. Uh, she made the decision about a year ago, a year and a bit ago now, to live in a van because she was renovated from her apartment, couldn't afford it, couldn't find anything else that was affordable in where she lives. She works there, so she has ties to the community. Uh, she's a full-time worker for the province in healthcare. Terry, when one looks at your story, though, and this, I know I know you've put it, you know, you've managed to find a way to make that roof over your head work, but when one were looks at your story and thinks someone in your shoes, if you don't have secure housing, then what about all the people who other people who who don't have full time work and so on? There's a cautionary tale in here, too. And I feel like I need to ask you, is there more that could have been done more that can be done to make sure that someone in your situation has a roof over their head, a house? I wish I knew the answer to that. I mean, I feel very fortunate that I do have a van to live in. We mm-hmm. have thousands of people living in tents all over the city here. And, you know, I do have a full-time job, but like I said, I, I, I don't know what the answer is. I just feel fortunate that I actually have a van to live in. Do you see this as being, is this, is this it? Is this going to be the roof over your head now for, for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I've had people ask me, you know, you've been in a van for a year now, you've saved some money, are you going to start looking for an apartment? And uh, I have absolutely no desire to look for an apartment. I still don't want to pay the rents. I still make the same amount of money. So it would still be the same issue. I probably couldn't find a place, but I haven't paid rent for over a year. I I, I guess just the rental equation, just because, you know, it's become so expensive that it just doesn't make sense anymore. I guess you can't, it's not like you can pack up and go somewhere else right now. You still have your job to go to every day. Yeah, I, I don't want to pack up and leave. I love Nova Scotia. It's a beautiful province to live in a van. And what, what do you tell other folks out there then? I mean, I, I know that not van life isn't for everyone, but there's a lot of people out there who face that same that same insecurity. It must have been really tough those those months when you were waiting for them to sell the building. That, I mean, it sounds it sounds like you kind of knew it was coming and just how stressful that aspect of it is as well. 
Yeah, I'd say that was probably more stressful than moving into the van. Those six months were really very stressful. I I can't even go into how bad it was during those six months. Um, So moving into the van, as stressful as it kind of was and how, you know, kind of heartbreaking it was for me leaving my home. Yeah, it wasn't as bad as the lead up. And you must have people communicating with you who are in that situation right now who are facing you know, are facing a very uncertain future because of just how expensive housing has become in this country. Yeah, I've had people reach out to me on Facebook from all across Canada, wondering how I do it, what it's like in Nova Scotia to live in a van, just various questions. I I think people are are definitely curious about the lifestyle. And I I think it's going to a lot more people are moving into that lifestyle, whether it's a van or an RV. There's a lot of people in cars even living here in Halifax. Yeah, we see that in many parts of the country. What's been? I mean, there's clearly there's been some some good parts in this. You found something that that is that matters, and I suppose in life that's all that really matters to some extent. But at the same time, you've also pointed out in your videos some of the real challenges that you go through as well. What's been the best and the hardest part about about this experience? Uh, I don't know. I think the hardest part was just like trying to figure out how to how to make myself safe. I don't have a fridge. That was my choice. I took the fridge out and I opted for a cooler. So I need to, uh, I keep frozen ice bottles. So that's something I have to do every five to six days. I have fresh water and gray water that needs to be emptied. I have a toilet that needs to be emptied. You know, all your basic necessities have to be replenished and emptied in a van. And how has it affected just your day-to-day life? I mean, you still go to work, I I gather, and you still do other stuff. I mean, how how has that been with with trying to sort of maintain the routines that existed before you moved in? Um, Well, I kind of got into a routine with work. I usually work three shifts on and then two shifts off or two shifts on and two off. Uh, So I would, you know, park downtown. I keep my scrubs and um, things like that in the locker room. So especially when it was getting cold, like in November and December, I would just get up, throw sweatpants on in the morning and just walk to work and get ready there. Do you still miss miss having having that apartment? Not really. Uh, this is a lot easier to clean. It's, it's helped me become much more of a minimalist. I had a fairly big storage unit when I first moved out, and now I have one half the size, and eventually I hope to not have one at all. So... You know, over those six months, I got rid of quite a bit of my belongings. I think that was one of the harder parts of leaving my old life. And then over the year that I've been in the van, I have gotten rid of almost the rest of my life, (laughs) my storage life. So now I'm down to just a a kind of a few totes. I work part-time in film, so it's mostly that kind of stuff. Wow. Okay. So you have you have you have another part time gig as well. Well, Terry Smith Fraser, thank you so much for just shedding some light on this, and and I'm glad you found. I mean, so many Canadians are going through this really awful experience now of of having to face housing insecurity. I'm glad you found a roof over your head that that's good with you. Yes, me too. I I, I do feel horrible when I drive by all the tents in the city, especially when it was really cold. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure how or how other people are managing. Well, Terry, thanks so much. It was nice talking to you. In the last half hour, we spoke with Terry Smith Fraser. She's a 57 year old single grandmom and full time nursing assistant with the province of Nova Scotia. She was forced out of her apartment last year and couldn't find anything else. Her rent was doubled when she was rent evicted, couldn't find another appropriate place to live in, and decided that she was going to live in a van, uh, finding nothing else that she could afford. She's posted a lot of her experiences to TikTok. Here's one of them. 
How cold is it in your house? This is the snow that came in yesterday when I came into the van. This is snow still on the bottom of my shoes from yesterday. Welcome to the joy of van life when you're driving. Literally, it doesn't matter how well you put stuff away, pack stuff away. It's gonna roll around when you're driving. Right. Um, you know, Terry's taken a very, she, she's found peace with that roof over her head. But so many people, as she pointed out, when we spoke with her in the last half hour, so many people out there, she sees the tents pitched up in, in and around Halifax, of course, now one of the most expensive cities to rent in in the country. And it really symbolizes how what this housing affordability crisis means to so many people on so many levels. I mean, imagine Terry has a full-time job and always had. She's had stability in most of her life other than the roof over her head. And it seems remarkable that we wound up in 2023 in that kind of situation where even a full-time job doesn't guarantee you a good solid full-time job doesn't guarantee you a roof over your head anymore and it's part of a bigger problem too and 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 not to touch too much on age but this was part of it that that i found really interesting because i was looking through stuff over the past week um homelessness for those over 55 has traditionally been rare really rare but one cohort of late baby boomers, those born between 55 and 65, is now arguably the fastest rising group uh, suffering homelessness and housing insecurity in the United States. Here in Canada, one expert, uh, one researcher called the 50 and over community the, quote, new face of homelessness in this country as well. So what's driving it? Uh, how well is the current system equipped to handle it? And what can be done to try to make sure that people can rely on having a roof over their heads as they grow older, even at a time when, as we well know, housing has become so scarce and so expensive, especially rental housing. Dennis Kulane is a professor of social policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Back in 2019, he co-authored a report called The Emerging Crisis of Aged Homelessness, and he joins me now. Uh, Dennis, thank you for your time tonight. Glad to be here. This is one of those issues that I think is is striking because when one thinks about who you see on the streets of any Canadian city or American cities that I've been to, you often picture it as being sort of younger people. But this idea that there's a whole cohort of, of sort of boomers that are now finding themselves with extreme housing insecurity, to use sort of a technical term, it comes as a bit of a surprise. And yet the data backs it up. Yeah, you know, elderly homelessness was quite rare in the United States since we've started tracking what we call contemporary homelessness on or about the mid-1980s. You know, the most common age in 1990, for example, was around age 30. But that happened to be the second half of the baby boom also at that time. And as time has progressed, the age distribution has also progressed exactly to the right so that uh, basically the second half of the baby boomers are the largest group in the homeless population still to this day. And you've traced that back to a lot of different events. I mean, this isn't a sudden thing. As you mentioned, this has to do with a, with a, a series of phenomenon that that particular generation or half of generation has faced over time some real tough luck, to be honest, economically. Yes, th this is a group born between 1955 and 1965. So they came of age around 1980, and they were preceded by the first half of the baby boom who drove up housing prices and, you know, filled up the labor market, which put downward pressure on wages. And then there were back-to-back -back recessions in the United States in 79, and then again in 82, 83. And the 82-83 the recession was significantly deeper than anything that had happened since the Depression. So for Black males, let's say with a high school education or less, 
their unemployment rate reached 28% here in the United States uh, in 1983, which is double what it would have been 10 years earlier and double what it would be 10 years later. So there was a kind of generational dislocation that occurred. And these folks never got a toehold in the labor market, ended up in the only way to make money. It was in the underground economy, mm-hmm. which was dominated at that time by the crack cocaine trade. And, and we fast forward. I mean, and, and we associate a lot of homelessness with sort of addiction and mental health issues. But you've also pointed out that, you know, the, the way that the economy has then moved right up until the to the global financial crisis of 2008 and nine and the, the crash of the housing market, that all these things have sort of conspired to, to push a whole bunch of people for many different reasons out of homes and onto the street. Yeah, the economic crisis. So let's say, you know, the 2008, the Great Recession, but also COVID. One of the things we see in the wake of these things is that the people who are least able to get back into the labor market are people over the age of 50. They are the ones who struggle the most to get back uh, and into employment, steady employment. And so, you know, the fact that this is coinciding with this, you know, baby boomer population coming into old adulthood has really made the risk for homelessness that much greater. And when one looks at how this the whole system is set up, I know you know it's it's fairly similar in the U.S. as to here. Clearly, in Canada, there's a greater social safety net and so on, but the system itself isn't set up for that age cohort either, is it? No. In fact, our benefits. If if you were someone, so our social security system has two tiers to it: one for people who have been in the formal labor market and where they have contributed to the social security system for a certain period of time. And another one for people who've been in the informal labor market who didn't make those contributions. And so they're not eligible for our main social security program. And instead, they're shunted into what is more like a public assistance program. It's about $800 a month here. And it has not kept pace with housing inflation. It's adjusted by the overall inflation rate, but that is not sensitive to housing inflation. And in particular, the fact that people on these fixed incomes spend most of their money goes to pay for rent. They have been swamped by the uh, rental market, which where basic median prices are exceed well beyond what their monthly income is. So you, you have a population who we've, you know, a, a certain proportion of it, specifically those with, with lower education levels who weren't didn't get a foothold in the in either the, the housing market or the labor market. They're hung out to dry at this point in time in the later part of their life where they're the most vulnerable. Exactly. And so, of course, they present with all of the health conditions one might expect of people who might be in their 70s. Uh, and even though these are people in their late 50s and early 60s, you know, they have mobility issues. They have long-term chronic health conditions, diabetes, hypertension, COPD and such, and many of them with walkers and wheelchairs. And, and it's it's quite a sight to see on American streets, these frail elderly people, some of them still wearing hospital bands on their arms from a recent discharge from a hospital. And they're just being placed into our public shelters. And, you know, most of our cities don't actually have enough beds for everyone. So sometimes they end up outright sleeping outside. So it's pretty distressing to see. Yeah, and and when and when you look at, at, I mean, I've always read that for for younger folks who who you know people who are sort of end up temporarily homeless, that a lot of them are able to get back into shelter at some point. You sort of there's a blip. They they you know they find their way back in. And I, I for what you've studied in the way you describe it for this cohort at least, that's really tough. Like once they fall out of the housing market and end up on the street, as you pointed out, it's really difficult for them to reestablish themselves. 
Yeah, the, the more challenges they face, you know, from a, a health perspective, the harder it is for them to navigate all of the usual pathways one might have to get out of homelessness. Fortunately, we do know some people end up with family members. Many end up in nursing homes, but our, our nursing homes are designed for relatively brief stays. So sometimes they'll go to a nursing home and sent right back into homelessness after after they've stabilized. They need extra assistance to you know get out of homelessness that is maybe not required for people younger. Yeah, I mean, one statement I read, and this is a Canadian statement, actually, from a researcher at McGill who called the over 50 community the new face of homelessness in Canada. And I don't think we talk about it much. You know, I think this crept up on a lot of people. They didn't know this was coming. We forecasted this 12 years ago. But, you know, the field that just Congress and what have you did not really respond. And now that it's here and it's in our face, I think you know, it's a reckoning. And the providers, these homeless providers really are not equipped to deal with aging related living assistance that folks need. So we are not prepared to deal with this problem. And and I don't see anything on the immediate horizon that's going to change that. Dennis Colain is professor of social policy at the University of Pennsylvania. We're talking about the huge increase in the number of baby boomers specifically, but of that younger boomer cohort born between 55 and 65, who now find themselves housing insecure or homeless, outright homeless. Dennis, you mentioned that it, it came, It's although there had been warnings about it for quite some time, and the, the new face of homelessness issue that I was talking about, that was printed back in 2016. So we've been aware this was coming. I guess the pandemic, like so many things, accelerated the problem. And then rents have skyrocketed. Housing prices are skyrocketing. What can you do? What can be done, I mean, universally to try to protect this very vulnerable population, specifically one that, I mean, if, you know, and in most countries, we're taught to respect our elders. You certainly don't want to leave people in that kind of state having to fend for themselves on the street. Well, there's several things we can do. First, we need to more carefully examine why our income safety net, if you will, social security in our case, why these programs are not sufficient to help people stay housed. And the bottom line is it's going to mean that there's going to have to be some increase in the amount of money people get and to make sure these programs are accessible. In the U.S., you know, you can't qualify for this public assistance programs for elderly people until you're 65. And, you know, people who are homeless who've made it to 50, their life expectancy is 64. So we have to think about how do we make these programs more accessible to these older destitute folks so that they have some income. We also have a healthcare problem in the U.S. And, you know, we don't have a national health insurance program. We have a Medicaid program. It's not designed to reach people to provide street-based medicine. It's not designed to deal with all of the housing issues that make it complicated to address people's health needs. So there has to be a re-examination of that. So basically fixing the safety net and making it work once again is pretty much the most important thing. But obviously, we also need programs and people who can help these folks navigate their way out of homelessness and help them to search for housing, negotiate arrangements with family members, friends, or boarding situations, whatever the case may be, because a, a lot of a lot of people are going to need that kind of direct assistance. It doesn't feel like this is a group that are necessarily top front of mind for a lot of, well, certainly politicians. I mean, I can't imagine there. this is a particularly vocal voting block that people are worried about. It feels like in many ways they are kind of the new face, but also the invisible face or the invisible voice of, of, of homelessness now. 
Well, it's interesting because I think that has been true, but we're getting uh, across the United States, there just seems to be much more widespread recognition of this problem. Local media outlets are, are frequently now reporting on it and telling these painful, painful stories of these folks who just are really distraught by finding themselves in this situation. So I think that there's growing awareness, but you know that has to be followed by actual tangible policy proposals that are going to get something done. I guess when you look at it broadly, because the, the, the inevitable question is, you know, why should the re- why should everybody care? And I think empathetically, everyone understands why everyone should care. But if you create a system that allows people of a certain age to fall through the cracks like this, it means everyone younger than them should be looking ahead with a certain amount of trepidation as well. Like you're setting a precedent here that I don't think we want to set. Right. And in fact, what was, you know, during the Great Depression, you know, our country uh, and I know Canada as well responded by building a social welfare system to make sure that elderly people were no longer threatened with, you know, hunger and destitution. And, you know, that was the whole purpose for those programs. There were gaps, but the intent was then to fix that, which we did. Um, But we've taken our eye off the ball and we've let these programs deteriorate, let they've been picked at and, uh, and made more difficult, more penurious over the years. And so we need to take a fresh look and, and recognize, look, we have a social obligation to protect the most vulnerable people in our society, children, elderly people, people with disabilities. And if we're not doing that, and those are the people we find homeless, then shame on us, shame on our international reputation. And, um, and what are we really teaching our children, our fellow citizens about our values if we let something like this go? You did mention that, uh, I suppose, since you first started sounding the alarm bell more than a decade ago on this matter, that things have improved, that people are paying attention. Are you optimistic at this point that changes may come before we see ever more? I mean, rents continue to, to just skyrocket in Canada. That's a huge problem. Uh, there's no way that someone who's find, found themselves on the street at the age of 60 is going to get into the housing, buy, buy themselves a house. So when you look at it that way, it feels pretty bleak if you look forward. But is there any cause for optimism? Well, I agree with you that it does seem bleak, but I won't have any optimism until I hear that there's an actual proposal that's going to move through our legislative process that might do something about it. And 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 there's nothing yet on the horizon. So, you know, that concerns me. Always eager to participate in conversations about something like that because we, we need to get something on the agenda. Do you see examples from other places? I know Europe tends to be pointed to Scandinavia in particular as doing much better at this kind of stuff. Do you see any examples out there that could be a bit of a guiding light for for everyone who finds themselves uh, facing this issue? Well, we've had some success here in the United States uh, in addressing homelessness. So success around veteran homelessness, success around chronic homelessness, and even we've had progress with family homelessness using good research, using good evidence, We've been able to get the legislative process to change these programs, focus on these populations, and actually achieve substantial reductions in homelessness. So we hear a lot about the crisis on the West Coast, which is real. But nationwide, the United States has actually reduced homelessness for for significant populations. And so we know we can do it. We need to do it. So even our own country is a place where I think we have evidence for optimism. 
just a question of turning one's gaze on this this group who I don't think most people understood was facing such such peril uh, when it came to housing. And of course, even though you pointed it out, you're right. I think it feels like it's it's kind of snuck up seeing people uh, of, of a certain age on the street for no other reason than they can't afford a home is something that we're going to have to get used to. Well, I hope we don't get used to it. I hope that we we step up and we express appropriate outrage that um, you know this can't exist in a in a society of our wealth. We have the tools in terms of helping people with their income, housing assistance, healthcare. We can do this, and and we just need to make sure that we're appropriately disturbed by the problem to do something. Dennis, thank you so much for your insight on this. You're welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. Well, come Monday night, someone is going to be sounding celebration in Alberta because we should know who will form the next provincial government there. It's uh, The campaign is heading into its home stretch. Election day is on Monday. A lot of people have already voted, uh, 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 you know, voting in advance. Advance voting has uh, really been a big thing in the Alberta election this time around. Uh, the polls, at least, I mean, if you take them as a whole, show that it's still a very close race. Only a handful of seats could decide whether the NDP or the United Conservative Party do form the next provincial government. It's been a long time since Alberta's had a really close race, if ever, I, I think, uh, one this close, at least. Uh, UCP leader Danielle Smith says the NDP campaigned on negativity and fear while her party brought positivity and hope for the future. And Smith got some big name endorsements over the past few days, including from Conservative Party leader Pierre Poiliev and former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. I'm hoping that uh, voters are persuaded by the endorsements I've gotten from Stephen Harper and Pierre Poiliev. And this is, uh, to me, that that people are are looking for a Conservative government based on the the things that, that, that they care about. Meantime, her opponent, NDP leader Rachel Notley, spent most of the day in Calgary, which is going to be a big battleground on Monday. Uh, she also got the backing of former Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi today. It comes a week after the province's ethics commissioner concluded that uh, Daniel Smith had breached Alberta's conflict of interest law, one of many issues that kind of sidetracked the UCP campaign. And Notley says when it comes to credibility and leadership, the choice should be an obvious one. Today and over the weekend, the UCP, you know, they're going to throw everything that they've got to try and persuade you that Daniel Smith should be premier for the next four years instead of me. But in their hearts, I think even they know that she shouldn't be. She's going to hope that's true come Monday. A pollster and political commentator Janet Brown joins me now. Janet, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. This has been, I mean, I'm in BC, but I've been watching it from afar. This has been a real knock them down, drag them out kind of election fight, hasn't it? It's been, it feels like it's gotten very personal. Oh, it sure has. Um, you know, we have had so much attention on this election from across the country. I, I lost track of how many um, how many people I talked to across Canada about the election just today. Um, but what we have here is so unique. We've got two women running. Um, that's happened in Alberta before, not the first time, but we've got two women. But the thing about these two women, they're both very strong communicators. One is the premier and one used to be the premier. And that's never happened in Alberta. So it's just been a fascinating uh, election to watch. When it all shakes down, because, I mean, we always ask about what is the ballot box question, but it feels like there are a few here and it depends who you talk to. Well, you know, in, in my polling that I did a few months ago, going into the election, when we would ask people what the most important issues were for the upcoming election, the number one answer people would tell us is health care. 
Um, inflation would come in number two, the economy would come in number three, and then leadership would come in number four. Well, the election ended up being about the fourth most important issue, and and healthcare and uh, inflation and the economy um, didn't get nearly as much play. And um, the idea of making this campaign about leadership that was really driven by Rachel Notley and the NDP, she wanted to draw a clear distinction between herself and Smith. But I think we're seeing that that alone wasn't a strong enough strategy um, that I think what uh, Rachel Notley may have done and in putting so much effort into getting people to question Danielle Smith and whether she would be a a good leader um, Notley didn't put enough attention into convincing people that she that she would be the right leader. Right. I mean, and we've seen this federally, too. I mean, at times, if you if you set the bar too low for your opponent, they easily hop over it. I mean, I watched the debate. Daniel Smith's a very effective communicator. If you're trying to demonize her, uh, it, you're, you're in for a tough sell. I mean, I heard what the NDP was trying to do in terms of selling their vision for Alberta, fixing health care and so on. Uh, but you're right. It really felt like they, they spent an awful lot of time uh, talking about their opponent and that could backfire. And and this is exactly the strategy they had in 2019 when they lost to Jason Kenney. Um, that campaign was all about how much more likable Rachel Notley was than Jason Kenney. Um, but a majority of Albertans kind of shrugged and said, like, we don't have to like him. We just have to think he's going to do a better job. Um, now, of course, Jason Kenney had his own troubles once he got into, into power, and uh, um, the UCP replaced him with another leader who Albertans didn't find all that likable. and um, But the NDP ran the same strategy. And like you said, they set the bar so low. I remember the debate in 2019, and I said, as long as Jason Kenney doesn't grow horns in a tail during this debate, he's going to win. And the same thing with, um, uh, with, with Smith. Um, what I was hearing from people was, you know, I was expecting her to be crazy. I was expecting her to just say ridiculous things during the debate. But no, she was thoughtful and she was measured. And, um, and, and because of the low expectations, she was able to, um, you know, most people came to the conclusion that, well, no, if not most, but people were sort of divided on who won. But definitely there was no sense that Smith lost. Right, which which was sort of what people were watching. I guess there were no knockout punches that night. But if you were expecting a Donald Trump, you, that's not what you were going to get. I mean, I, I think one of the things I found interesting watching from outside too is just that um, when you, given how strong the economy is, mm-hmm. uh, given how hard it is for a conservative, United Conservative Party to lose in Alberta, it's uh, it's odd that it's so close. I mean, it says a lot about leadership of the UCP and divisions within the UCP as well that it, that we're still talking about who might win on Monday, given the state of Alberta right now. Well, there's one reason that this race is this close, and it's Danielle Smith. Given how strong the economy is, we have a we have a surplus budget. Uh, the job situation is good. Given how strong everything here is in Alberta, it should have been tailor made for a UCP candidate just to cruise to victory. Um, even though um, even though Jason Kenney was very unpopular. I think if he could have survived his leadership review and he was running in this election, despite all the, the concerns Albertans came, uh, had about him, I think he'd be cruising to victory. And I think any of the candidates who ran against Danielle Smith in the United Conservative leadership race, um, they probably would too. But, but, you know, Danielle Smith has just said some very, very controversial things. She has insulted her opponents in, in the most heinous way possible. She's been found guilty by the Ethics Commissioner. Um, but still, 
uh, at least my numbers suggest that um, Danielle Smith's going to squeak out a victory. Yeah, you had some numbers out today. It was a CBC poll, uh, in fairness. Mm-hmm. You had some numbers out today that were that were interesting. And I should remind listeners, I don't want to I don't want to toot your toot your horn too much, but you've been <laughs> right mo- most of the, almost all the time. So, what are your numbers telling you? It, it looks like going in, the momentum is on the UCP side. Well, at a provincial level, I've got the UCP about eight points ahead. But you have to understand, I mean, I think people outside of Alberta have this perception that, you know, Alberta is just this big conservative monolith. But actually, you know, the the fact that the province has two big equal-sized cities makes this an interesting dynamic here. So, you know, there's Edmonton and there's Calgary. And those two cities are very different when it comes to political bent. And then we've got the rest of the province. So it's almost like a three-legged stool, Calgary, Edmonton and the rest. Now, in Edmonton, it's going to be an NDP blowout. They've got like a 16-point lead in Edmonton on pace to win every seat in the city. Outside of the two major cities, the UCP has a huge lead, and they're on pace to win almost every seat outside of the two cities. That leaves Calgary. Um, I think we're going to rename the city Battleground Calgary because we keep using that phrase. And my numbers show that a a slight advantage for the UCP, but an advantage within the margin of error. So it's too close to call here in Calgary. Interesting, because you've pointed out um, some of the announcements made heading in sort of, I mean, the, the, the benefit of being the incumbent is that they there was a real concerted effort to attract Calgarians come by the UCP as this election, coming into the election. I'm thinking of the arena, obviously. Mm-hmm. But there's been, I mean, everyone knew where the battleground was and they've both been working really hard to try to win those votes. Well, in the lead up to the election, and we have a fixed election date here in Alberta, so everybody knew when the election was going to be. And in the lead up to the writ being dropped, the UCP government under Danielle Smith had the opportunity to pass a budget, um, you know, uh, uh, lots of revenue coming into the province right now. And the UCP took advantage of that and they passed the biggest spending budget in Alberta history um, per capita controlling for inflation. Um, even the NDP, if they had remained in power, the UCP would have been outspending where the NDP were at. So they took advantage of the financial situation, made an awful lot of promises, and then even after the budget was passed, sort of between Easter and May 1st when the writ dropped, Daniel Smith was acting like she was in an election campaign. She was doing one campaign-style announcement after another. I think when we look back on it, we're going to sort of realize the NDP, they waited till May 1st to kick off their campaign, and I think the UCP decided the campaign unofficially started at Easter. Or in the home stretch of the Alberta election campaign, it has been one as Janet Brown, our guest this half hour mentions, has been is being watched right across the country. A lot of, I mean, it's a tight race between two really formidable opponents, and I think that's what's been so compelling about it for those outside of the province. Of course, if you're in Alberta, it matters. Um, come Monday, it's probably going to boil down to battle battleground Calgary, as Janet was saying, a pollster and political commentator. Uh, Janet, what are you going to be looking for on Monday to see how this breaks? I guess it really does boil down to Calgary. 
Yeah, so of course, I'm going to have a few key ridings that I'm looking at, and they're going to be the bellwethers to see who's going to win. So um, as I said, Edmonton's probably going to go all orange, all to the NDP. So we'll be watching the donut around Edmonton, those communities around Edmonton, like St. Albert and Sherwood Park and Leduc. Can the NDP scoop those out? Um, there's a couple of oddball ridings like Banff, Kananaskis, Lethbridge East. Maybe those are in the grasp of the NDP. But really, it's about uh, Calgary. And and if anybody's familiar with Calgary, um, it's almost like a barometer. The further north you are, the more likely you are to find NDP voters. And the further south you are, the more likely you are to find UCP voters. And um, the critical line is um, Glenmore Trail, which is about two-thirds the way down Calgary, um, cuts the city horizontally. I kind of think of it as Calgary's Mason-Dixon line. Um, if the if the NDP can win seats south of Glenmore Trail, they're going to have a very good night. If the UCP um, wins the seats in the south of, of Glenmore plus picks up seats north of Glenmore, um, then I think it's going to be the UCP's night. So, um, you know, just, just to tell you what they're called, um, it's ridings like Calgary-Glenmore, Calgary-Acadia, Calgary-Pagan. Um, you know, it, it, it's whoever picks up those seats is likely to win the election. Looking at it, though, if you see if the NDP does well in Calgary and, and does well in Edmonton but loses the election, which is highly possible, it's, possible. it's going to be an interesting future because you're going to have either whomever gets elected is going to face uh, a large segment of the population that didn't vote for them. And that's uncommon in, in Alberta political history as well. It is. We're used to big victories here. Now, um, I took my latest poll and I put it through a seat projection model. So I don't actually know what's going to happen with individual seats, but the model gives you an idea. And the model results in the UCP having a 15 seat advantage. Now, if that's the margin of victory, 15 seats, um, we have not seen that in recent memory in Alberta. We've never we've never had a minority government here. We've never had a government with less than a margin of victory of 15 seats. And just to do the math, there's 87 seats in the legislature. 41 of them are outside uh, Calgary-Edmonton. So, you know, if um, if Daniel Smith manages to get you know, 35 seats outside of Calgary and Edmonton, and then, you know, picks up another 15 seats in Calgary, that makes her caucus very lopsided with very little urban representation. If the NDP pull this off, they will have virtually no rural representation in their caucus. So, um, you know, we're, we've just been so focused on May 29th, but, um, you know, it's going to be a chaotic scenario, probably regardless of who wins. And, and clearly for both leaders, anything other than a big win, I suppose a, a narrow win for the NDP would be fine for Rachel Notley, but mm-hmm. it feels like both these leaders have a lot on the line come Monday. Neither of them are likely to survive a, a significant loss. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's pretty true. Now, Rachel Notley, she's been in politics a long time. She's been premier before, and I think if she can't beat Smith for all the to- uh, the problems Smith has that we talked about in the first segment, if she can't beat Smith, NDPers are going to say, "Who can she beat?" Maybe it's time for for new leadership. And with Smith, you know, when you're at the helm of what's considered to be the natural governing party of Alberta, and and you and you um, can't win, or you can only barely win. That doesn't bode well either. Keep in mind, um, in 2019, Jason Kenney won 63 out of 87 seats, 
55% of the vote. Um, the margin of victory was 22%. It was an absolutely huge victory. He didn't last four years because the UCP um, is so demanding of their leaders. Indeed. Well, Janet, thank you so much for your insight on this. Uh, well, I'll be thinking of you on Monday as we watch to see how this all unfolds. It's going to be an exciting night in an Alberta provincial election, and that's something you don't get to say very, very often. Yes, for sure. Thank you very much. It's a very, very big trend right now. So there's a huge increase in the market of stuff labeled as sustainable. They're using all the right words, but I don't see it actually being put into practice. If I'm going to buy something that claims to be eco, am I asking the cashier like if they know? Honestly, no. That's uh, people talking a bit about what we're seeing, a big trend in clothing these days. Words like eco-friendly, vegan, organic, ethical, sustainable. You may have noticed them when you're out shopping for clothing. Uh, they are becoming increasingly common as consumers voice a lot of concern about the impact the clothing industry has, both environmentally and socially. What kind of impact do they have on the planet? What kind of impact do they have on the people who make them? These are all things that have really come up over the last 15 years or so. I mean, they've been around for a long time. But it feels like uh, there's been a lot more attention paid to where our clothes are coming from and what conditions they're being made under. So no surprise at all that brands are eager to show they're the right fit in more ways than one. But what exactly are the standards? What do those labels actually mean? Are they just advertising? Is there, are there actual standards they have to meet to be able to put those labels onto their items? How much information can you actually glean from them? Um, and is what you're buying really better for the environment, better for those who are making the garments if one of those labels is attached to it? Well, of course, like everything, it turns out to be really complicated. I think we found out over the years that supply chains, when it comes to clothing, are complex, that oftentimes the retailers themselves don't entirely know what the supply chain is made up of. And keep in mind, uh, in Canada, Canada alone, in this century, we buy 60% more clothes and the time we keep them and wear them continues to fall. So we're buying more stuff at the same time as trying to be more conscious about where the clothes we buy actually come from and what their impact are, are what their impact is long-term. So Global's new reality set out to decipher uh, the new reality set out to decipher what exactly those labels tell us, not just about what's in your, in the item that you're buying, but just how sustainable it actually is. And Megan Robinson is a producer uh, with the new reality and a national news producer to Global News. And she joins me now. Megan, thanks. Thanks for having me, Ben. This is a really interesting topic because I think it's one that we all encounter. I mean, we all end up in clothing retailers at some point. We see these trends. All fashion is aware of this idea of sustainability. What made you decide to dig into it? It was really for personal reasons to start, Ben. I started asking people in my life about brands in clothing that they thought were sustainable. And then the responses I were getting was getting was really wide ranging. But right. it, I found that a lot of the people in my life were being misled to believe that they were buying products that were better for the planet when maybe they are not. I started looking into it a bit more and I went into a mall to see what claims are being made for the everyday consumer and was kind of astounded by you know what you do face when you go into a mall. I pitched the story and, and here we are. I've spoken to are. dozens of people for this story, brands, experts, and people in the industry, very generous with their time. And I did get to learn a lot about what is a very, very complicated fashion supply chain system. And sustainability, of course, is a very complicated term. So it means something different to a lot of people right now. 
Indeed. And, and I think, but when we see it on a label, I, I think we we want to believe that if something says it's eco-friendly or sustainable, that it in fact is. And you found that those labels in of themselves don't really tell you much about where the item comes from or just how sustainable it actually is. No. And, and in a lot of the cases, the marketing departments are not necessarily talking to, you know, sustainability departments. So, you know, it might not be that this is intentionally misleading, but it might be there is a eco-friendly or green factor in the supply chain. And that's the one thing that, you know, a marketing department decides to run with, but it doesn't mean the entire item or the entire company is actually practicing sustainable things. The supply chain for fashion is mostly overseas for what we purchase in Canada, which means it's very hard to track. And even when you do put people on the ground trying to track those things, those manufacturing, the sewing, it's really, really tough to actually see where products are made, if they're you know being made fairly, people are getting paid, dyes, fabrics, really, really hard to trace. Yeah, some examples, I guess, without naming and shaming particular brands, but some examples of where we get misled because I think it's it's quite obvious. I mean, there's a bit of a, a bit of a contradiction going on here. We like to pay. You look at the success of things like Shein and so on, and we like to pay less for clothing. We're used to fast fashion now, even though we may be you know against it. We're kind of used to that pace, so we demand of these companies sort of fast and cheap, and yet that's not really what we're asking for. So it's kind of natural that they find that middle ground for the consumer and say, yeah, it's still fast and cheap, but it is sustainable too. What are some examples of of where this is, you think this was really not the case? Yeah. I mean, I think really vague terms are being used. You know, a a term like vegan in clothing, really, that just means that it's plastic. And ultimately, (laughs) I appreciate that, that, you know, for vegans, that's great, but plastic, Um, recycled. I've seen a label that says 68% recycled content, but it could just be the hang tag inside the shirt that is recycled and the rest of it is all virgin materials because there's really no guidelines. And of course, you know, deceptive marketing is illegal in this country under the Competition Bureau and the Competition Act. However, none of these tags are going through a regulatory process. And so in food, for example, if you want to market something as organic, it needs to pass a very rigorous test of what it is. That's happening less. And so these marketing claims are being used, again, very vague terms. And it is very confusing for a consumer because you do want to believe that the brand is putting forth an honest claim when you're buying that product. What's interesting, I was reading that, you know, back in, I guess, 20 years ago, I think almost no clothing companies put out so-called ESG reports or, you know, corporate social responsibility reports. Now they all do. It's as if they're all very much aware of what this issue is. And and we're just watching how it unfolds. But do you feel like they're making progress or do you feel like it really has been more of a marketing exercise than anything else now that you've looked into it? I think it's a, a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, I think some of the big giant global clothing companies are making good progress, but the way that they market specific items is a bit misleading. So I think to be a, a true sustainable company and offer sustainable items specifically in clothing, you have to have a full breakdown of your entire organization. And I think when apparel companies start looking for private certification, so B Corp, for example, you can pay to have have that third-party audit of your brand, your company, and it happens 
across every industry, but specifically for clothing. And in Canada, there are a very small number of clothing and apparel companies that have B Corp certification. It's a very rigorous process, but it means that they are being held to pretty high standards in terms of their social, environmental, and business practices. And that's kind of the upper echelon in terms of proving that you are a sustainable company, putting your money where your mouth is, and actually walking the walk. But it must be tough when there are so many labels out there that sort of say what you say. So yours just looks like another label, even though you paid you paid more money for it and sort of gone further than other companies are. The whole system becomes a bit uh, fuzzy. And that sort of dissuades companies from wanting to go that extra mile, because why would you? You have, you, inv- you have investors, right? You have shareholders. So you're spending extra money to go that extra mile, but consumers are still a bit confused about what it all means. I mean, I, one of the things that I read this morning that I thought was really interesting was just that the market-based approach to, to sustainability has, just hasn't worked very well. Consumers don't really want to spend too much more money on stuff. They have a hard time navigating the whole sustainability labeling, as you were mentioning. Investors, uh, companies need to make profits. So they're, they're, they want to be fast and cheap still. It's all just a giant contradiction in some way, unless there is some sort of firm regulation out there that says, this is what sustainability looks like. And if you're a consumer, this label means something. Yeah. I mean, ideally clothes should be made sustainably one day, but right now you're right. You know, people are not shopping with sustainability in mind as the number one priority trend, comfort, price. Those are other things that people are thinking about. And while there definitely is an increase in people who are looking for specifically sustainable items, there is a higher price tag because people are you know, being made fairly and the supply chain is traceable and all of those things. Every single person I spoke with for this story reminded me that the most sustainable item you have is the one that's already in your closet. And then secondhand shopping is the second thing. But of course, secondhand shopping takes a time commitment and not everybody has the luxury of time to go to a thrift store and search around. So if you are going to buy something new and you do have sustainability in mind, taking the extra five minutes to click through online or to actually read the tags can certainly help you figure out what's real and what's not. And in terms of the sustainability. Well, Megan Robinson, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ben. We're helping you navigate uh, sustainable fashion, so-called sustainable fashion this half hour. Uh, the new reality, which airs on global TV is uh, on Saturday nights, is doing a whole special tomorrow on sustainable fashion, how to make sense of those labels. What do they really mean when they say you're buying something sustainable or uh, or eco-friendly, for instance? Uh, and, and just what kind of advice, what do you need to know before you take the plunge and say to yourself, oh, I'm buying something good for the environment or I'm buying something that promotes social justice? Does it? Does it really? Um, Fashion Takes Action is a nonprofit organization established back in 2007 to advance sustainability in, in the entire fashion system through education, awareness, research, and collaboration. And uh, Kelly Drennan is the founder and executive director of Fashion Takes Action. And she joins us now with some advice on all of this. Kelly, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I read an interesting stat that, that you mention often, and that is, I think Canadians feel like we're becoming better at this, at, at, at shopping and sustainably. But in fact, we buy more clothes now than ever before, and we keep them for shorter periods of time. Absolutely. We buy 60% more today than we did 20 years ago, and we keep our clothes for half as long. The average garment is now only worn seven times before we're done with it. 
That's a remarkable stat. And the impact of that must be hard to quantify. I mean, I think we know what the impact is when we see stories about landfills full of clothes. But, you know, the, the impact of it, I, I'm sure we haven't even quite wrapped around our heads around just how much of an impact that's had over the past two decades. Absolutely. I mean, waste definitely is a, is a huge factor. You know, 92 million tons of our unwanted clothing is being landfilled globally every year. And in Canada, that's about 500,000 tons, which is still a lot. But, you know, you talk about impacts and there's just so many other impacts. There's impacts on the people who make our clothes, 75 million people in the world who make our clothes. And most of them are women and most of them are not paid very well at all, if anything, you know, there's impacts on the emissions, uh, the production of our clothing, the shipping and transportation of our clothing, chemicals that are used to make our clothes and to finish our clothes. And then what's happening with that wastewater, it's most often just being dumped in to the rivers, uh, you know, in these developing countries where these people who live near the rivers and rely on that water for drinking and for bathing and for agriculture are now, you know, exposed to these toxic chemicals. I mean, it can go on, on and on, right? Right. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and, we, and we as consumers drive it, right? I mean, ultimately, we as consumers make decisions. And the more clothes we buy, the more we perpetuate this. Exactly. It's that whole supply demand thing, right? The more we tell the industry that we want to buy because we're buying it all the time, the more they're going to just continue to make it. And so we have, we're in this sort of endless cycle of overproduction and overconsumption. At the same time, major retailers understand that we want to be more sustainable. So they've started to try to, I, I guess, I mean, they, they release corporate social responsibility reports, they tag, you know, they put tags of sustainability on their own clothing. But it's a bit of a mess, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's the Wild West. There's all this pressure on the industry, right, to respond to climate change. So they have to reduce emissions, they have to commit to net zero. And But at the same time, the general public are recognizing what our role is in this as well. And because of this growing interest in adopting a more sustainable lifestyle, brands are taking advantage of that. And they're misleading us by overstating the sustainability of their products, right? So this can cause us to either purchase clothing that we believe to be sustainable when it really isn't, or to feel mistrust and confusion about how to tell whether a product is truly sustainable or not. Outside of that, you know, that sweater you knit yourself and keep forever, right. how, how, which is, you know, to my, in my mind, the, the you know, the, the pinnacle of sustainability. But how is it that a, a consumer should approach these issues then? Say you're a consumer who wants to be more sustainable. Uh, you still, you'll still be buying some clothes, maybe not as many as before, but how should you approach your shopping experience then when you're looking to be more sustainable? Yeah, well, I mean, right off the bat reducing how much we buy, right? Do you really need to buy something new? But when we are shopping for something new and you do want to truly be sustainable, just you know, look for things like vague terminology, right? So look at the wording and the marketing. A lot of this, the problem here is that the language associated with sustainability is, is very broad and it can be interpreted in so many different ways. So don't take these terms at face value, you know, in, in clothing, you know, natural doesn't always mean it's free of chemicals or that it's better, right? So, and of course the word green, like just avoid that, you know, that's just far too vague, but also looking at like the data and, and looking for, you know, support for these sustainability claims, right? So if, if they have the facts and figures to, to back these things up, you know, for example, a brand might say that they've reduced waste or water pollution in their supply chain. Well, what does that mean? They need to demonstrate that with numbers. How much waste did they reduce? You know, how does it compare to the previous years? How are they reducing it? Just, it's just stating that they're not, they're doing something and not providing the data to go with it is really meaningless, right? 
And then there's certifications. Now the certification landscape is also overwhelming. There's something like I read the other day, like 80 something certifications for environmental and social um, responsible fashion. So that's a lot like, I, you know, but still it's, it's a good step. So, you know, look to see if they have a mark, a logo that backs up things like organic, you know, there's the GOTS standard or the GOTS certification, which is the global organic textile standard. You can also look at the packaging. You know, I always find this is really interesting. You know, these brands that say that they're doing all these great things, that yet their packaging is plastic or they have like all this unnecessary paper or oversized cardboard boxes. So that could be a bit of a, a flag that they're maybe not as conscious as they're claiming to be. Deceptive imagery. Oh, this one always gets me, you know, yeah, looking for like, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like images of lush rainforests and panda bears and mountains. And, you know, it's just makes you feel good because it's, you, you know, feel like you're protecting nature when you buy this product. Right. But, you know, really, we should be heading over to the website to see, you know, what they're really doing to operate ethically or more sustainably. Shop and save the planet. Look cute and protect the environment. So these sweeping marketing statements, you know, are all clearly just for commercial gain and, and highly misleading. So this is where companies need to be more transparent. And um, but we also need some government to, to step up and, and make sure that the consumer is being protected at the end of the day. Right. Do your homework. And, and you go into schools now. I found that really interesting. You know, teach teach kids young when they, when they can figure things out fast, you know. And well, so yeah, you we don't give kids enough credit. You know, I think people just assume that if they're, you know, younger, say, than college or university age, that they don't really have opinions that matter. And that's a bit absurd. I mean, I, I have two young children and, and I started this program because of them and they were eight, eight years old at the time. And, you know, they, they actually have, you know, really curious minds and they're really passionate. This generation is really passionate about the environment, you know, and so, yeah, we, we do need to be educating them about some of this so that when they're out in the world buying stuff, so we're getting them before they're buying things, right? So it's sort of like, the precursor to, you know, having that little bit of spending money to get out there and buy clothes. So if we can reach them now at that age, by the time they're out there buying things, hopefully they're going to be making some smarter decisions. Well, Kelly Dredden, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, uh, early last week, came out with new guidelines around non-sugar sweeteners, such as aspartame and stevia, saying they do not help weight control in the long term and pose an increased risk of chronic diseases. They did. They released this study. Now, there's been some questioning of exactly what the methodology of this study was, but it is another reminder about whether or not we should be consuming non-sugar sweeteners. Do they offer any long-term benefits at all? And are they at all dangerous? Because lots of people talk about potential risks around certain artificial sweeteners and so on. So we thought we would dig into what the WHO actually is saying here, what it means, what it means to you. And to help us do that is Evangeline Mansioris, who is a program director of nutrition and food sciences, accredited practicing diet, dietitian at the University of South Australia in Adelaide. Evangeline, thanks so much for your time. Uh, good evening to you there. How are you? I'm well. Of course, it's Saturday afternoon where you are, so it's, it's like, uh, like moving ahead in time or backwards in time in your case. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll tell you, Saturday's doing well so far. Good. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you're giving us a sneak preview of what Saturday could be like. Um, <laughs> 
Tell us about this WHO report because it got a lot of headlines. And then when you start to dig into it, I mean, clearly it's it's a, it's 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 guidance, and it's based on a, a sort of an amalgamation of studies that they've looked into. What what is it saying? And when they what is it saying? And what when they say non sugar sweeteners, what are they referring to? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's a huge study and it's something that we've always been suspicious of when we've looked at the research studies up to now. So what the WHO said was that based on the systematic review they did, they're advising that people shouldn't be using non-sugar sweeteners as they aren't going to achieve the weight control or weight loss and they can actually increase your risk of the non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease and mortality. Now, what we mean by non-sugar sweeteners are those artificial ones, um, the ones that you use in very small doses that are quite intensely sweet, and sometimes they're up to 400 times sweeter than sugar by weight. But the difference is they provide absolutely no energy for us. Um, And this can be either ones that are chemically synthesized, like aspartame and, um, you know, uh, saccharin. And it can also be the ones that are extracted from fruits and, you know, plants like stevia and monk. So both sorts are linked to this increased risk of diabetes and heart disease. How does that work? Because I guess a lot of people turn to, I mean, I think we've all at some point in our lives probably consumed, you know, uh, those products in a, in a number of things, diet, sodas, any number of things. Um, how, how is it? That, I mean, a lot of people turn to them for precisely those reasons. And I guess what the WHO is saying is that, especially when it comes to things like weight loss, they, that they don't work. Why is that? That's right. It's an interesting question because when they first came out and they were in, you know, massively in food, certainly here in Australia, it was in the 1990s. And as you said, you got it in um, soda, you got it in yogurts, in jams, in jellies, all sorts of things. And so we expected that that's, this would be a really good tool to help people lose weight. And if we just consider a can of um, soda, so about 375 mils, if you had one a day and you swapped it for one that was artificially sweetened, theoretically, you'd lose about a kilo a month. But mm-hmm. we didn't see that. And that was the interesting question is, why, why don't people lose weight? And there's a couple of theories behind it. The first is that people sort of compensate. So they say, okay, I'm having a diet soda. I'm going to have a donut to go with it because I'm having the diet soda. So, you know, that they justify the, the cake or the bun or the biscuit with that. So that's one method. The second one is that it actually may impact our microbiome. And our microbiome are the bacteria that live in our gut. And we do know that those microbiome actually help to regulate appetite. And they also make really useful um, products that our body needs, nutrients that our body needs. And so it's thought that these non-sugar sweeteners, these artificial sweeteners, may actually impact on how well the microbiome live, the good microbiome live in our gut, and also how they're able to help us. So there's a couple of theories around it. Right. Uh, and, and then when we look at what the WHO is saying, because I think what really grabbed attention as always, because, you know, you do hear lots, of, I, I think I was speaking to someone randomly about this and they were going, they went off on, you know, the dangers of artificial sweeteners and so on. And I know that, that the, that the, that the organizations that represent these companies have vehemently sort of pushed back against this. But what is the truth then about, as far as, as the science says, about uh, the dangers of, of non-sugar sweeteners, I guess specifically the artificial ones, but maybe that's being unfair to those ones. Yeah, look, I mean, what, as I said earlier, the WHO did a systematic review 
And a systematic review is a piece of study where you collect all the studies that have ever been done on this particular area. So they collected papers that looked at artificial sweeteners versus people consuming sugar-based drinks, against um, naturally sweetened products, against non, no sugar in the diet. So they included all of them. And there's two types of studies that they included. And one lot was the experimental studies. And that's where scientists actually intervene and make a change to, in this case, it would have been the diet. And then they watch to see what happens to weight and heart disease and diabetes. And the other type of study they included were what we call observational studies. And this is where we just watch a large group of people for a long period of time. And we look at what they eat and we look at what happens to them, but we don't make any changes. And the two sets of data gave slightly different results. The randomised control trials, where we can infer, yes, the change we made led to the outcome we're interested in, in this case, artificial sweeteners and weight. And they saw a very small decrease in weight with the randomised control trials. But with the observational studies, they actually saw that weight went up. And so what they did was balance the data from both sets of studies to come up with this overall conclusion. So there is a little bit about a little bit of um, you know speculation about the fact that the intervention studies, the randomised control trials, right. did show a decrease. But what they did was they pulled all the data together to come up and say, well, this is what we see overall. Now, to be clear, I guess the WHO is not calling for these these products to be taken off the market. They're simply issuing guidelines around them. Um, what are those guidelines then? Yeah, look, absolutely. So who is, you know, does a lot of stuff in terms of nutrition and diet about improving health and reducing the risk of disease. And the guidelines is we should be consuming as little of these as possible. And the only exception is for people that already have diabetes, where it may be useful for them to help them control their blood glucose levels. And that's something that you would know if you, you know, if we've got any listeners out there who are talking to their doctors or their clinical dietitians and going, look, I'm really having trouble with this. It might be useful to use an artificial sweetener. But from everybody else, we really should be trying to use these as, you know, as, as less often as possible. And it doesn't mean totally avoid them because, you know, there's always going to be situations where you want something to consume or drink that might have these in there. But the less often you have them, the better. And we've always said it's not what it's what you do every day that's the problem. So if you're drinking these sorts of things, these diet sodas every day, that's where you've got to be worried. But if you're having one every fortnight, every month, it's not something to be concerned about. Um, and certainly they're not recommending that we go and use sugar instead. So I hear a lot of people saying, well, the sugar, the sugar soda is better then. That's not the case either, <laughs> because unfortunately, yes. about yes. five years ago, the World, the World Health Organization released a guidelines about having too much sugar in our diet as well. Evangeline Mansouris is with us this half hour. She's Program Director of Nutrition and Food Sciences at the University of South Australia in Adelaide. We're talking about uh, non-sugar sweeteners. The WHO has released new guidelines about how and when we should use them, uh, the operative term being sparingly. Sparingly, and of course, sugar's no better. I mean, the WHO released guidelines, as uh, Angeline, Evangeline was saying earlier. The WHO released guidelines around sugar use about five years ago, telling us to cut back as well because obesity is an issue. So, Evangeline, if, if we we shouldn't eat much sugar because that's a problem, and there really isn't a good non-sugar sweetener alternative, what should we be doing? <laughs> what can we do? 
Oh, it's a it's a good question, isn't it? Absolutely. Look, um, and as you've said, the problem with sugar is it does contribute to a lot of excess kilojoules or calories without offering any nutrition. But what people often confuse is the sugar that's in fruit. So having sugar in fruit, which is naturally there, is quite okay. So we need to be careful about making that distinction. And that who recommendation suggested we have no more than 10 teaspoons of sugar, added sugar a day and preferably below five. So that leaves you with not a lot of options for drinks, right? Um, so look, water. Water is always going to be the best option. It hydrates you really well. It doesn't have any added um, you know, artificial sweeteners or sugar or anything in it. So that is overall the best drink. And what you see heavily promoted in most national dietary guidelines. But, you know, clearly people need some alternatives at times. And you've got things like kombucha. It's quite popular here in Australia. I don't know how popular it is in Canada. Pretty popular. Um, pricey, but, pricey but pretty popular. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, it is. And you can easily make it at home, actually. Yes. So there's lots of recipes online for people to make it. But you've got to be careful that you buy kombucha that doesn't have added sugar into it after the fermentation process. So sugar is added to help the fermentation happen um, and then it disappears because the bacteria have broken it down. So just be careful the kombucha you buy doesn't have added sugar in there and you'll be able to see that on the um, information panel, the nutrition panel. Tea and coffee, iced teas, iced coffees are always going to be popular. Once again, make sure those ones that are pre-packaged iced teas, they can be just as high in sugar as soda drinks can be. There's also seltzer water and mineral water, which you can drink, and you can flavour that with perhaps a drop of fruit juice in it just to give it a little bit of flavour. Um, and then the other option is milk. Um, you know, milk is really important. It's critical for our health. We need the calcium that's in it, particularly as we get older and our risk of osteoporosis increases. So there are a few drinks there, but of course we're still going to have some of these other sodas, but it's try to make that the treat once a fortnight like it used to be you know 40 50 years ago when it wasn't consumed on a daily basis right i, I guess the reckoning here is that for a while there was this perception that maybe we could still drink sweet things and, and have none of the downsides of them and i guess we're learning that just is not the case absolutely and you know we see here certainly see here in australia people get through two liters of you know a um soda drink quite easily in a day and you know the things that are bought at fast food restaurants so opt for water it's cheaper um it's better for the environment it's also better for your health yeah it calls into question i mean this is a, a different topic but it calls into a question i mean when i was living in britain they brought in sort of a soda tax right i mean this has become something that's quite common uh it, it sort of calls into mm -hmm. question not necessarily the utility of having a soda tax but the utility of not allowing that same tax to apply to non-sugar sweeteners which i suppose might be the case in some places i'm not sure yeah that, that's a good point actually i haven't heard of non-sugar sodas having attracting a tax Right. Um, but this recommendation could would really start to look at that as an option about well what do we do with um, you know these non uh, you know artificially sweetened soda drinks um, should they also attract a tax we say certainly seems in some of the countries where it has been introduced that the soda tax does work and even if it's not introduced it starts a, a discourse in the community about these sort of drinks and their impact and that might affect people's purchasing of them as well. So either way, I think the more we talk about it um, and we look at our food supply, 
and what it gives us and how it's linked to our health, and not only our health, but the planet health as well, we've got to start thinking about, well, what do we want for our optimal health, you know, going forward? Indeed. Evangeline, thank you so much for taking the time on it. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday afternoon. We're right behind you. We're right behind you. Thank you. Have a good evening. Before we leave you tonight, we're going to talk a bit about Tina Turner. Of course, she passed away this week. We know that there'll be a private funeral ceremony for close family and friends. There will be no big celebration of life. Others will do that. Crowds have been gathering outside her estate uh, in a community outside of Zurich, on the shores of Lake Zurich, uh, where she died earlier this week of natural causes at the age of 83. She had been uh, ill for quite a while. Of course, everyone remembers her incredible return to fame in the 80s with songs like What's Love Got to Do With It and Private Dancer and Better Be Good to Me and so forth. And of course, where she had come from, that story of her of her rise with Ike Turner, her, both her musical partner and her partner in life, that horrific uh, marriage that she had with him, the abuse and how she came out and talked about it as well. Um, how she managed to to change the course of her life through sheer will often um, and and find happiness in the end. Uh, she did talk a bit about all that energy she brought to stage because she was a bona fide rock star, the queen of rock and roll. She once described, someone once described her voice as screaming dirt. Here's what she said about her own energy. My longevity in the business is attractive to all age groups because of the energy. And so... Why I, I dance at such a pace is because it feels good with the dance, and I'm known for that kind of energy. And um, it, young kids can really relate to that as well. And could they ever? I mean, even when I was in my teens, I thought Tina Turner was just the bomb. That, the, I never saw her live, sadly, but wow, the energy, the energy. Uh, Julie Black is a Canadian singer-songwriter, Canada's queen of R&B and soul, they call her. Multiple Juno Award winner. Her latest album is called Three Rocks and a Slingshot. And she was heavily influenced by Tina Turner. So on Wednesday, we managed to catch up with her to talk a bit about the impact that Turner had on her career and about Tina's enduring legacy. I started, of course, by, by thanking her. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. Thank you so much. I, it's amazing. I was looking back, you know, I was just looking at your name, and it's amazing how many times you've been compared to, your voice has been compared <laughs> to hers over the years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true I, I honor. Day, I, I My gosh. Say, yeah, yeah. Well, what was your reaction? I mean, it, you know, it, it, sometimes it's not surprising, but it's still bittersweet, isn't it? Because uh, it means we've lost another another great one. Absolutely, and you know, realizing what, what I, I found out today, I thought somebody was playing that trick on me. Um, there's this Instagram meme where people like tell that, tell your loved one, their favorite singer or favorite artist has passed away and then videotape the response. And I thought that right. was happening to me today, uh, but it was real. And I really, I broke down. I started, I, I started to cry. I felt like my music mummy, my music mummy passed away, you know? You, what was it about Tina Turner? Because, like, you know, we're, we're I'm, I'm, I think I'm a bit older, a bit older than you. Are, but we, we, uh, you know, there was a time. Yeah, so I'm, I'm 52. So we kind of knew the Tina of the resurrection, right? And I didn't know mm-hmm. a lot. I knew a bit about the Tina uh, before, but this is before YouTube, right? This is before you could just right. find people and watch their old videos. Now you can watch Tina all over the place. But I hadn't yeah. seen a lot of younger Tina in that age. So the Tina I knew was the Tina of Private Dancer and so on. But she was just mm-hmm. so remarkable at that age. I, I thought she was, what, 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 do, what do you remember about her first from, from, your, uh, from your teens or even younger, I guess? 
Yeah, well, my siblings are 10, 20 years older than me. So my sisters, right. they were playing Tina and the new Tina. It's like, it's like she was their Beyonce. You know, like she, she's seeing that video, um, what's love got to do with it? I remember that the yeah. jean jacket, the hair, the fashion, right? The legs, the pumps. The, so my sisters were like all about emulating her. But I remember seeing her and making sure, like realizing that, well, here's this woman that's similar complexion, very like ethnic features, strong, muscular. It was like, wow, she was a, she was a superhero to me. And then the voice on top of it. Um, changed my life, definitely inspired me as a performer. Yes, as a singer, but as a performer. The energy, I thought Tina was six feet tall. I always thought she was like six feet plus. And to know she was like five, two, five, three with that power and that right. presence. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And she, I mean, and just to the, the life story too. I mean, she, she, you know, she learned that by performing thousands and thousands of times, escaping that horrific marriage to Ike Turner. But she never mm-hmm. forgot the, how talented she was. And I think that's sort of the, the endearing part about, about the Tina Turner story is that she, she never forgot the talent. She never lost the love for performing and being great. Exactly. I think that's what so many artists nowadays, if we could remember our uniqueness, remember how special we are and understand that we're somebody's always watching. For me, I feel like it's my renaissance. I feel like it's my resurrection as well. All these years after Seven Day Fool, it's like, you know, so much happening where it's like, wow, you know, Tina, I listened to interviews before she passed on and she always was sure. She was certain and sure about who she is and what she was capable of doing. And when that was threatened, whether it was not being able to wear the pumps, you know, et cetera, she knew that, okay, you know what, if you're not getting full Tina, then I'm not going to come half step. Wow. Yeah, I, I, you've been, you know this business. I mean, I think people don't understand what goes on behind the scenes in the music business. To be able to be in her position and say, I'm going to do it Tina's way must have been, yeah. I mean, it, it must have been a hard thing. I mean, once she had had all the, the huge amounts of success, fine. But any other time, that would have been tough. That would, would have been tough. I'm sure there were, people were always trying to get her to do stuff she didn't want to do. Of course. And to realize she was like, you know, that era of losing everything but keeping her name, knowing that yeah. her talent, you know, her, knowing that she she's like, I'll go clean houses. She just wanted to protect her peace. And I'm inspired by that as well her spirituality, you know, really her moving to Switzerland. Like she, she really charted her own course and didn't worry about what other people had to say. That's what it seemed like anyway. And when she broke free yeah. from Ike, she still focused on her freedom more so than what happened in the past. Tell me, you're, you're someone who's, who's sung a lot of different kind of music over the years. You've never been afraid of changing genres and trying different stuff. And I listened to Tina Turner, and she wasn't either. I mean, she sang rock tunes, essentially. She did mm-hmm. Otis Redding. She did CCR. You know, she was happy to, to, sing, uh, to sing with Sting. I mean, she, was, she, was, she did Goldeneye with Bono mm-hmm. and, and The Edge. I mean, she, she could do anything. Uh, tell me a bit about that, because you know what that's like. That's not easy, right? People want to pigeonhole you. Oh, they totally do. I mean, my third album, The Black Book, that was rock-inspired, and, and I took a lot of heat for that. And I was like, well, you know what, this is, I, I'm Canadian. I'm a born and raised Canadian. So at the end of the day, what I was listening to, to your point, in the 80s, 90s, we didn't have black radio. We didn't have urban radio. So, you know, I, I'm a, a kind of like a jambalaya of all the things I listen to. So when Tina Turner would really represent rock, and she's the only one in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, 
you know, for that's her right. past body of work and the new body and her, you know, the renaissance, the resurrection. And that's inspiring to me. So, and, and to know that she really, she really uh, represented motherhood as well and spoke on her guilt of not being there, et cetera. So yep. I just love her passion, her honesty, her vulnerability, and um, and her her she's she was married to someone seventeen years her junior and that right. that whole thing too that whole thing too not yeah. giving up on love. Yeah, he came to pick her up at the airport. He was he was he was the person that the record company said to pick her up at the airport in Dusseldorf, and they fell in love. Yeah, it's a great they story. Fell in love. It's a great story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't. I, I look back. She didn't write songs. I, I, I guess I knew that because a lot of her, the songs that she sung through the eighties were, were you know other people's tracks or old, you know, Al Green tracks mm-hmm. and so on. Um, she didn't write her own songs. That, that I found that interesting. I mean, you're a songwriter. You've written songs for lots of people. Um, mm-hmm. What's the difference there? I, I guess. I guess. I guess there isn't one, but it doesn't take away from her legacy, obviously. Oh, not at all. I mean, there's. I, I could appreciate co-writing, and I appreciate people have written songs for me. As well, you know, so, but I think it's a matter of the outfit fitting. It has to, you don't want to wear tight pairs of shoes. People figured out right. the outfits that can really have her not get corns on her toes, metaphorically. Right? And so, but I wonder, it makes me wonder if she did any sort of collaborating with Ike, but just didn't get the credit. I don't know. don't want to start a rumor. Yeah. I'm like, she just, she really embodied that whole, she was like a songwriter in her movement and in her voice. I was always treated a little bit different in those other countries than in America, because in America, a black singer, R&B singer, is always a black singer, R&B singer. I'm happier than I ever thought that life would become for me. So that means that most of my hardships came while I was young and growing up. And in the last days, when normally people suffer from old age and sickness, my happiness came. That was Tina Turner speaking in a documentary about her life not that long ago. Julie Black is with us, Canadian singer-songwriter, Juno Award winner, of course. Um, we've been talking about uh, about Tina and memories of her and her legacy as well. It was amazing to think back as to why she was so powerful when she made her comeback in, the, in her 40s. Mm-hmm. And you realize it's because her talent then had, there was a lot of life in that voice. And even as like a young kid listening to the radio in Montreal, you couldn't miss that she, there was something special coming out of the radio when she said indeed so special so unique so powerful and um i think there's that that energy of okay if i if i have gone through and gotten through all that i've gone through and i'm still standing then my days ahead of me are going to be better than the days behind me and that's that's what i feel was we were feeling it, hearing in her voice that 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 chance that you know you know Roger Davies saw something in her you know the manager yep. at the time was like okay you know what I could do something with this and she didn't feel like she was just thrown away. No, and 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 for artists like yourself, you were mentioning that I think I, it was a tweet that you wrote today just about showing you the path that 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 you know sometimes for artists who start off young as you did and as she did mm-hmm. and how you sort of chart your career from there can be a challenge yeah. and that sometimes you need someone to say, to say listen you can do this for as long as you want because it's what you do exactly. it's what you're, it's what you're born to do yeah exactly we shouldn't be you know forced to you know retire. And this is when music is medicine. Music is the heartbeat of the world. It's community. 
it brings so many people together. It's a bridge. And so seeing Tina Turner, knowing her story and me like getting older, age, aging is a beautiful thing. And I want to, I'm celebrating that. I'm watching footage of her at 60 years old, running, running on stage in the 70s, you know, in high heel shoes. I'm like, there are people that can't do that in their sneakers or their flip flops. Like, yeah. you know, the whole, the whole notion though about, about being healthy, you know, no matter how she might've passed away, she clearly was fit. She clearly was really about her spirit and wanted to have health and happiness in her in her whole life, but especially in her latter days. Yeah, you you've performed uh, in front of big audiences. How much energy did you need to do a Tina Turner show? Do you think? Because it looked like it was tiring to watch, let alone I know, people, do. I know people say that to me all the time. I think what's amazing is yeah. that it's like it's like it's a sport, right? It's watching athletes perform on the court right. or you know in the field and you know people there are people who have fear of speaking public speaking radio they'll look at you and be like ben how do you do that aren't you afraid how does your mouth not get dry it's the same thing it's actually the same thing when you're passionate and when you're born to do something the energy arrives and you want to make sure that you are just the best you and so for me whether it's 10 people or whether it's 10,000 people it's the same energy yeah and yet she was also when she spoke about performing, you could tell that she also like she she had seen the ups and downs of it, right? So she understood how to how to survive the the obvious what must be the roller coaster of what you do, you know, the success 100%. and then having to start over. Yeah, that that part I found really interesting because it's not you don't see behind the curtain much, but she kind of allow, allowed people not often, but every once in a while she'd allow people behind the curtain to say, "Listen, this isn't all this isn't all fun and games. This is hard work yeah. too." Yeah, like my feet are hurting, you know, I have bunions or, you know, she she spoke about her feet and the pain. She did? She spoke about, yeah. I remember there was an Oprah Winfrey interview where she said, I don't know, I don't think I can wear these shoes anymore and I'm not going to come out in a gown and stand up and sing. So if I have to be reduced to just standing in front of a microphone, I'm not going to do it. I saw that interview with my own eyes, you know, and I was was really, yeah, like, well, she knows her brand. She knows what, what feeds her own soul. Yeah. I know you didn't get to meet her personally, but you did sing with Etta James. And I always sort of think of them as sort of being in the same, not exactly the same, but I mean, Etta didn't have that other huge second part of her career, but they were contemporaries. They were, they were, you know, those voices, those voices. Wow. Etta James, Tina Turner, Whitney Houston, my three. And now they're all, they're all having a party in the sky. And, you know, um, Tina, somebody I still, I was like, oh, come on, come on. I was going to go see her musical. Didn't get the opportunity to go. It's like, oh man! But um, I'm happy that she she left an imprint on my heart and on my life. Yeah, I should ask you about. I mean, you had the new album come out all ago, right? Three rocks and a slingshot. It's not too too. Not, yes. not, it's recent. Uh, how's that going? How's everything been going for you? I, I imagine there's a summer ahead for you, and you're probably doing yes. the same things everyone's doing this yeah. summer. Yes, performances, festivals. I mean, I'm still you know, coming off the the NBA All Star anthem and um, yep. all of you know working with Indigenous peoples, and so. There's a there's a lot of of greatness happening in in the space of community and activism and you know music is is that vehicle. So I'll be performing lots. I'm doing the Toronto Jazz Fest here, uh, doing some stuff in the, all across Canada and so and and overseas as well. So this is my renaissance. This is my Tina Turner moment. Like it is. to be 45 years old and feeling like the passion of a 16 year old, but with the wisdom and the lived experience, you can't beat that. My heart is feeling great. Yeah. You know, it's it's nice. 
better be good to me. Absolutely. Ah, it's perfect. Right? It's perfect. Yeah. And, and, and again, I, well, I think one of the things that people really admired about, and I know it's sometimes tough to wear the mantle of being authentic, but but Tina Turner sort of struck everyone as being sort of, I'm Tina Turner, and I'm going to say what Tina Turner thinks. So that was that. And that could land you in hot water at times, but at other times, I mean, that's how she lived her life, right? And I guess that's a lesson to all of us. 100%. That's, that's that courage. That's being authentically you. You know, I often say God broke the mold after he made all of us. And so at the end of the day, everyone else is taken. I don't want to be anyone else. Everyone else is taken. And she lived that. I love that she truly was so open about even her shortcomings, how she felt about parenting, how she felt about wishing she was there a bit more with her boys. You know, when her son committed suicide recently, a few years ago, she spoke right. very openly about that. And so she she was she was a, just a testament of honesty and truth. Yeah, a long way from uh, a long way from where she grew up. A long what a, what a life she had. Well, of course, the question, way. Julie, as always, as always, is uh, we get to play some of your favorite your favorites your favorite Tina Turner track or what whatever your few favorites are. We'll play those as we go out tonight. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, I, I, I don't I don't want to cry anymore. I love love that song. I don't That's care who's wrong or right. I don't really want to cry no more. I love that song. Um, love the old school, the 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 not bush, <laughs> Roundberry. I can keep yeah. doing it so many. But I would love, to, I yeah. would love to. Definitely, I don't want to cry no more. And I would love to hear um, her version of uh, "Let's Stay Together." Ah, uh, that's I see. That was the one that. That's the first song of hers I ever heard. I love that song, and I thought yeah. this is an unbelievable song, and it kind of resurrected her career, right? So that was uh, totally. Uh, Julie, have a great summer. I look forward to seeing you thank out you. and about and doing your thing. And thank you so much for thank your time. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Have a good night.